0: Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Now, joining me today is Mr. Andrew Holacek, and he is the author and spiritual teacher who offers talks, courses, and workshops all over the United States and abroad on a multitude of different things. He's a lifelong student of Buddhism, uh, frequently presents this tradition from a contemporary perspective, bleeding the ancient wisdom of the East with modern knowledge from the West. He draws from years of intensive study and practice, and he teaches on the opportunities that exist in obstacles, helping people with hardships and pain, death and dying, and problems in meditation. Uh, known, he's actually known as an expert, which is really interesting in lucid dreaming, which is something that we actually talk about in this episode, and uh, is is really well versed in the Tibetan yogas of sleep and dream and meditation. He's an experienced guide for students uh, who are drawn to these powerful, powerful practices. So he's the author author of several books, like the pain, or sorry, the power and the pain, transforming spiritual hardships into joy. Uh, preparing to Die, Practical Advice on Spiritual Wisdom of the Be- Tibetan uh, Buddhist Tradition, uh, Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. Uh, those are just to name a few. So really, Andrew has done some incredible things. He studied uh, and worked with some of the most profound, profound teachers of our time. Uh, he spent years um working um in in tibet uh, he did a whole whole bunch of work too much to actually get into here but uh, he's worked with the dalai lama and just some absolutely incredible uh people in the meditation space and he's done some really really incredible work um to support people in tibet but today, we're going to actually talk about meditation. So the, the majority of this episode is actually to give you a step-by-step, a three-step guide on how to meditate and really break it down. So Andrew does a really great job of actually disseminating information that he has learned over decades of practice. He actually has done a three-year meditation retreat. I want to say that again, he did a three-year meditation retreat. Uh, so he actually spent three years just in meditation, in meditation practice with Buddhist monks and and really took that time to cultivate a deep sense of understanding around this practice. And so he breaks meditation down into three steps, which we're going to unpack uh, over the course of the beginning part of the episode. And then we talk a little bit about lucid dreaming, what that actually is, how you can do it, why it's important. And interestingly enough, um, you know lucid dreaming is something that uh, a lot of psychologists and psychotherapists will talk about. So if you're familiar with the likes of Carl Jung, he'll talk a lot about dream states and dream psychology and the archetypes of dreams. And so we're going to talk a little bit about lucid dreaming, how you can do that and implement it and the benefits of it uh, that can actually show up in your life. Uh, So this is a really, really great conversation. Um, Andrew is really well known and really, really well known in the meditation community, in the Buddhist community. Uh, And um, before I bring him on, just a quick reminder for all the guys that are listening to this, definitely head on over to the Man Talks community. Uh, Join the community there. We've got about 4,000 guys now from around the world. And uh, it's growing quickly. And if you enjoy this podcast episode or if you know some people in your life who would like to meditate uh, but can't seem to can't seem to do it, um, this is a wealth of information. So I'd encourage you to manage for share this podcast episode with just one person. And please don't forget to leave us a rating or review it goes a long way. Um, and uh, finally, a quick reminder, we obviously have the alliance going on, which I'm leading. It's an incredible group of men. Uh, that are diving deep into mindset, into finding purpose, uh, into their relationships and developing a better level of intimacy with their partners. And it's a group that I lead online. It's an incredible group uh, with with some incredible men in it. So I encourage you to check that out at mantalks.com forward slash the-alliance. dash alliance. So that's it. Without any further delay, uh, please welcome Mr. Andrew Holacek. Connor, thanks for having me. Great to spend some time with you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. I've been following along with your work for a while, actually, and and a friend of mine uh, in the Man Talks community said, you you really have to have Andrew on the show. It'll, you know, he'll have a ton of value. And so um, the more I dug into your work, the, the more I got excited to have you on the show today. So before we before we dive into all the goodness that we're going to talk about, um, maybe let's just start with, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: Yeah, yeah interesting question. Well, I've had several, but I would say the first one, you know, kind of like a stem cell um, stem cell experience. In other words, um, the one like you suggested that really did kind of change the trajectory of my life was I was a young, stressed out undergraduate um, at Indiana University, um, pursuing a double degree in, in music. I'm a classical pianist and um, the sciences. I was interested in going to med school, and because I was and in a certain sense still am, but definitely has been te- um, tempered. You know, kind of an overachieving type A kind of guy. I started having um, pretty classic symptoms of hypertension. You know, um, high blood pressure and the like. And so I went to the health sciences center, and, and they said, "Yes, indeed, you know, mm-hmm. you're hypertensive," and they want to put me on these meds and all the stuff. And yeah, you know, I didn't want to do that. And I I remembered reading some preliminary data about, and this is way back. i mean, we're talking forty plus years ago. Some preliminary data about the benefits of meditation. There wasn't a lot back then, but there were some preliminary studies on transcendental meditation. And I stumbled across those, and and I remember reading something about how TM could help with things like um, high blood pressure. And I said, What the heck? There happened to be auspiciously a demonstration, a, a lecture on campus about TM. Um, and so I went to it, and the guy that presented it was really magnetizing. He was just a very subtle, sane gentle individual. And there was something about his presence that was attractive to me. And so I said, what the heck? Why do I have to lose? Because I really didn't want to do the med thing, the med- medication thing. And so I went to my first TM meditation instruction. I was 20 years old. It was one of these, you know, be- major before and after type of experiences because, and I really attribute it to a little bit of beginner's luck. I was given this, this meditation instruction and um, in relatively short order, my, my mind just completely settled into a, a state of utter quiescence without a single thought. You know, in the meditative traditions, you probably know this term, Connor. It's called samadhi or meditative absorption. And I, I fundamentally just kind of tripped into this deep state of meditative absorption where um, literally everything changed. And I stayed there maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. It wasn't terribly long. But it was a game changer because when I came out of that space, it was like, what the heck was that? I mean, it was a dimension of experience without without drugs, without any other alternative, I should say, artificial means that, you know, introduced me to a state of mind that I didn't even know was possible. Um, how mm-hmm. can one experience such a deep um, space of utter tranquility and quiescence? And even to this day, 40 plus years, it, you know, I, I sometimes talk about these experiences, Connor, and, and when we start talking a little bit about lucid dreams, I'll come back to this, that these types of experiences are so foundational. I've never had a true and near-death experience, but I think they're not too dissimilar from those because they, these types of experiences reach something so foundational, so deep, that they really can change the course of your entire life. I mean, people that have had near-death experiences, you know, you don't have to have them over and over to have them change your life. You just need one. And this one was like that. Um, And so I came out of that thing, and it was like, I don't know what that was, but I want more of it. And so began my spiritual path. Um, And we can talk a little bit more about that if you like. But it really was this introduction to a dimension of mind and really, by extension, dimension of reality that was uh, well beyond my event horizon. I had no idea this was a possibility. And whatever it was, I wanted more of it. And so began my search for stabilization and um, development in that state so i would have to say that's you know the most foundational of early experiences i've had
0: yeah i mean i i I love your you know i love your, your journey just like your story in life because it's you know it's so interesting to see the different paths that you've taken to get to where you are today you know like you got the double double degree classical pianist, uh, which I loved. I listened to some of your listen to some of your music before uh, before we got on the call, and because um, I, I actually have a degree in in music as well, and I was a classical classical singer, I was an opera singer, and so it's it's interesting to see how these paths can can take you in in different directions. I'm, I'm curious if any of your work in music and meditation have come together like where i've always i've always felt like the music has a special place in in meditative states sometimes and, and i'm curious to get your insight on that
1: oh yeah for sure definitely and cool for you with the opera thing that's great yeah i mean definitely you know And this is where i mean right out of the gates here we can get into some little bit more subtle stuff here but Yes, indeed. In in, in the traditions that I find myself resonating with now, you know, Eastern schools of thought, um, Buddhist and Hindu, Taoist, Sufi and the like, as you well know, Connor, they they talk about different levels of body. And and this may be of some connection to us when we come back um, later to talk about how to prepare for death and that sort of thing. But in in the inner traditions, they talk about the inner subtle body, you know, in addition to this gross outer body, we have this inner subtle body and eastern medical systems target this body for health you know like chinese medical systems um, ayurvedic um, indian medical systems work with things like acupuncture moxibustion, and the like they target the subtle body for health and, and spiritual traditions target the subtle body for for transformation for spiritual transformation and so um, sound works at this level sound works at the level of the subtle body and and this is why when we hear extraordinarily beautiful music um, and we feel our heart opening or we feel something within our body, it, it's really the subtle body itself that's being tickled, you could say. You know, it's kind of sympathetic resonance is taking place. And so, like, you know, for instance, uh, mantras. I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners know mantras. Um, mantra works at the level of subtle body. A mantra is a, is a sound. And, and even in Christian mysticism and in, in, in actually classic Christianity, you know, they talk about in the beginning was the word. And the word was made flesh and the being was sound and the sound was made flesh. It was crystallized, reified. And so indeed, um, you know, the music of the spheres, the, the these subtle dimensions exist externally and internally. And so I, I still, I can't maintain the level of proficiency I once had as a concert pianist, but I, I still do play the piano and it has the same type of magic that my deep spiritual practices have, especially when I'm working with, liturgical recitation and mantras and the like, um, because sound has this ability to invite, invoke, and awaken certain um, subtle properties. So uh, I'm sure that, you know, as a musician yourself, I'm sure some of this may resonate with your own experience, but it has deep connections. And and of course, in itself, it's just a segue into the deepest sound, um, really the sound of the mind, which is the sound of silence, you know, it's it's Paul Simon, (laughs) you know, one of the modern prophets of the age, you know, talks about the, um, the sound of silence. And and this, of course, is where we go into deep meditation, into deep dreamless sleep, and then, um, you know, actually into the great silence at the end of life and um, the silence of death, which is where we all end up. And, and it's very interesting, um, you know, Connor. Kind of when I do my retreats, I just finished a retreat in Sedona on dream yoga, and we do a, a large part of these retreats and silence. And and what I tell the retreatants is that, you know, silence is for bumping into yourself. Um, mm. And so, once the loud mind settles and, you know, we tune into that with music and mantra, that's just a stepping stone into the primordial silence, which is, in fact, our nature. And um, the deep meditative traditions are allow us, you know, and invite us to
0: experience that.
1: So, that's just one way to, I think, talk about how outer relates to inner.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right, because you're talking about this, I mean, it, it's interesting because in some ways you're talking about meditation um, as this practice of experiencing. I, I can't remember what the what the Buddhists call it, what the actual word is in Sanskrit, but it's the the word is translates into English for no thought, and and that's that's essentially like one of the paths that meditation is is trying to walk people down in some ways, or can give people access to, as you described in your experience. And and I don't know. I've always kind of thought that it's kind of interesting, and it's not it's not really meant to be like a permanent state that we're trying to attain, because a permanent state of no thought would actually be death, like to to never think again, right? To never experience thoughts again, that actually in some way would be the experience of death. And so it's it's very interesting that in meditation we are sort of sampling this experience of what it's like to experience. A brief moment of no thought, you know, of, of that of that moment of death, and yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm curious, uh, you know, like your path has led you. I think in I think in like '87, you you went and studied um, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, why why Tibetan Buddhism? And, and tell me a little bit about your journey, because you know I think for the listeners out there, you've you've like uh, you know I, I want them to get a sense of the broad scope of study that you've done, because you've, you've really, like, traveled a lot and got to meet some with some really incredible people. So I'll just let you uh, go on that a little bit.
1: Cool. Yeah, and to, if it's okay, Connor, let me just say one or two things about what you just said, because that's very compelling. And First of all, the Sanskrit word is, is nirodha, mm. um, which means cessation. Um, akin to the word nirvana, both are related to this kind of ex- sense of extinguishing or cessation. But here we're talking about nirodha, Cessation of thought, and and one thing I do have to say here that your comments um, suggest to me that I think is quite important is that um, yes, indeed, meditation can bring about states of mind of utter quiescence, cessation. But as you so correctly point out, and I think this is super important, which is why I want to riff on it for just a second. um, Thoughts are not the enemy. Um, Cessation in itself is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is actually to, yes, maybe tap into cessation, to silence to non-thought, you know, become familiar with that, which is actually one way to define what what meditation is, actually, is a process of familiarization. And then not so much to just hang out in that space. I mean, if you do that, that's a very common spiritual new age trap, literally called spiritual bypassing, where you think, oh, I'm just going to, you know, flip out into this state of utter quiescence and hum my way into eternity. Well, what do you do with worldly concerns? What do you do with Global warming and ecological devastation and terrorism and everything that's happening in the world, you can very easily bypass authentic growth by getting stuck in these delicious states of mind. And so, really, what meditation does in my 40 plus years of doing it and teaching it for over two decades is that meditation, you know, thoughts are never the enemy. The enemy is inappropriate relationship to thought. And thoughts are just the play of your mind. I, I refer to thoughts as really the, um, the children of your mind, and unless you're a psychotic, you don't beat up your kids. You don't stuff them into closets. You know, you, you basically allow your children to express themselves without indulging them, and then you simply let them go their way. And so, this is of some importance because um, you know when people talk about meditation, and, and as you know, meditation is a catch-all term. It's a, it's like when we say sports. I mean, sports just you know. A, is an umbrella term for so many different types of physical activity. And so when people say meditation these days, um, I always say, well, what kind of meditation are you referring to? Because there are literally, and especially on the Tibetan approach, which is why I'm so resonant with it, there are literally hundreds of types of meditation. But classic mindfulness is what people usually refer to. Um, that's the big revolution these days, which is really beautiful. But even there, you know, again, I reinstate it. Thoughts are never the enemy. Inappropriate relationship to thought is the enemy, trying to get rid of it, trying to grasp it. Um, that's that's the issue, and that's what we work with. And so very often when people say, well, what do you really do with meditation? And I say, well, in a very real way, meditation doesn't change anything. Um, it simply changes the way you relate to everything, and I, I think that's important, Connor, because otherwise it's very easy. We, we develop this kind of adversarial relationship. We start to wrestle with our mind instead of loving it. And in fact, you know, when, when people are having a, a tremendous problems with their mental content, like, for instance, if they're suffering from insomnia and the like, a very classic um, issue, often I'll suggest to them, almost like a mantra, and it may seem somewhat patronizing or gratuitous, to say almost like a mantra, literally, you know, love your mind, love your mind, love your mind. Create a pasture, as Suzuki Roshi said, you know, if you want to control a herd of cattle, you don't put them on a corral, you give them a pasture. And so meditation creates this kind of pasture where the mind can play and we can relate to it in a more appropriate way. So I have to throw that in if that's okay, because I, I think it's kind of important. Um, now in terms yeah. of my own realm, oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to say something about that? Connor?
0: Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, you know, I, I like the, the positioning around the relationship to the thoughts because, you, you really hit the nail on the head there. I think where a lot of people struggle is that they they do have that sort of aim of aiming towards not having thoughts because their thoughts are so uh, challenging, you know, maybe negative or, or confronting to be with that they actually want to avoid them. And so, so meditation can seem very appealing to those people that are in those, you know, sort of dark places, whether they're experiencing, you know, a lot of anxiety or depression or depressive thoughts. And and it can be that that sort of pull towards the letting go of those thoughts. And I like the reframe of of creating the you know creating the pasture um, and and actually having a space you know creating a space within yourself where your thoughts can can sort of roam you know roam free and, and graze and and sort of mature and become healthier rather than you know you or us uh, or the person that's meditating trying to. Rid themselves entirely of that, and so I'd actually like to just pause on that and sort of go a little bit deeper on it because I think um, I think that that's actually quite quite a good point. So, you know, I think one of the things that I've heard from a lot of people who are you know am, you know beginner amateur meditators I'm, I'm like using air quotes over here, um, yes. <laughs> but but one of the things that I've heard from a lot of beginner meditators is they're not really too sure where to start and i would imagine that meditation is much like um you know karate or any form of of martial arts where you have to establish a basis first and a very strong foundation before you try and you know go deeper etc so in meditation for for you and what you've studied what are some of the foundational pieces that that people can come back to to Shift that relationship internally.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I might have to ask a further um, refinements from your point. But you know, it, it first and foremost, um, honestly, is coming back to the to, to the wisdom of your body. Um, and if I'm understanding your question properly, Connor, if I'm not, please redirect me. But you know, on, on so many levels, meditation is extraordinarily simple. And in fact, I, I would argue that that's where the power that the profundity comes from the simplicity. Um, because the complex mind, you know, the modern, complex, sophisticated mind, honestly, it, it, it can't stand a chance against simplicity. You know, you have to surrender to it. And, and a large part of the genius of these wisdom um, traditions, meditation that have come from so many traditions, is really surrendering to the, to the simplicity of these practices. And the first thing to do is, a, is a, an extraordinary basic foundation is literally... Return to the wisdom of your body, um, and this is where yoga comes into play. You know the, the incredible skillful means of the yogic traditions that are now so common in the West are wonderful um, preparatory practices for meditation. They're not—they're not quite designed to do the same thing as meditation in the way we're referring to it now, because they're—you know—the motion can be very subtly distracting. But the motions and the asanas, the mudras of yoga, can be very powerful to bringing the mind back into the body, and. Uh, you know, what we want to do with that is they help you kind of localize the mind in the present moment. And and, and Connor, if you don't mind, I I have a very, very funny thing to interject here. This actually comes from Dan Harris's beautiful book, 10% Happier, where he says, and I do not think I'll be offending your audience when I use this very gentle word, but he says, you know, if you have one foot in the past and one foot in the present, uh, I should say one foot in the past and one foot in the future, you know, you're pissing on the present. Um, and in a very real way, you know, we're pissing our lives away because we live our lives in the past or, or future. And so what meditation does when it comes to body is it brings you into your body and yoga is a wonderful preparatory practice for that. And the idea here is that you literally come to your senses in meditation because your senses, now we're talking about sight, sound, smell, taste, touch your senses only operate in the present moment, right? I mean, you literally can't see the past. You literally can't smell or taste the future or past. Your senses only operate in the present moment. And so by using your body to kind of tether the mind, you're literally metaphorically coming to your senses and you will find yourself waking up. So I think that's the first foundation is realizing the incredible power, the elegance of the wisdom of the body Could not be simpler, and dropping into that wisdom when we engage in in the um, postures of meditation and the like, and then from there, maybe you can direct me further, Connor, in terms of what you're referring to or alluding to, like what 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 one can do to enhance or stabilize this. Maybe you can guide me along those lines. But I I stress that because anybody can do this. I mean, even right now, we could pause for 15 seconds. You can literally just you know release, open, drop into your body. And you will find meditative states in a very real way. Your meditative, uh, your body is always in a type of meditative space because your body is always already in the present moment. And if you simply descend into your body, you're descending into a type of meditation, and which is why the, the first foundation of mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition is mindfulness of body. I mean, it starts by coming down into your soma, into your very body, and, and the power of that cannot be overstated. There's tremendous elegance, beauty, and power behind just allowing yourself to drop into the wisdom of your body.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I think that that's it's. It really was the the direction that that I was sort of pointing towards, which is the the just the idea of simplicity. You know, I think that oftentimes you know, a very complex, fast-moving, fast-paced, grinded-out world people sit to meditate and even if they've been meditating for years sometimes it can very quickly um move into the space of the mind going going to the place of i should be doing something yeah yeah, 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 (laughs) i can't just sit here like that's too easy right and then sort of goes off on this on this tangent of like you know maybe you should sit differently or maybe your legs should be done you know or like whatever happens and so i you know i appreciate the just uh the grounding into, you know, step one is really drop into your body. What does it feel like? And the, the, the interesting thing is I see a lot of men specifically because I work a lot with guys who are so trapped in their head. Like, they're you know, we've, we've been taught that our, our cognitive abilities, especially as men, is, is really where a, a high percentage of our value and worth comes from based on you know societal acceptance and so a lot of guys are very disconnected from their bodies you know disconnected from anything that's between like you know their their pelvic region and their head and so it's, it's a very interesting space to start to drop them in so I, I appreciate that and then i think next where where i would love to go is to talk a little bit about the breath um, you know i think i sort of had a i sort of had a very um Uh, biased experience in university, where I literally, I like to say that I got a degree in learning how to breathe and yell. (laughs) And so, you know, a huge portion of learning how to sing is actually learning how to breathe, because if you can't breathe, you're going to be, you're going to be screwed, much like swimming. So tell me a little bit about how breath plays into um, meditation for, for people that are, are beginners or are sort of down this path. Um, uh, to a little bit like how does the breath fit in for you and, and maybe just from a from a buddhist perspective talk about the importance of the breath
1: yeah great question connor it's it's enormous actually um if not subtle in fact it's so enormous that the you know the etymology of the word spirit as in spirituality can be traced to roots that bring one back to breath um, and as you said not only in music as a singer but in yoga when you're doing yoga, any real yoga instructor will tell you that most of the asanas, the mudras, the postures that you're taking are basically invitations to work more subtly with this dimension of breath. So um, what you're saying is it's very uh, compelling because, you know, in my tradition, in most med- meditative traditions, as I've come to understand them, you know, we first start with the body. So we've given a very brief riff on that. You know, you start with your personal earth. I mean, your body is your personal earth. And the, very compelling to me is that the way we relate or don't relate to our bodies, and we can see this in, in obesity epidemics and in all the drugs and all the stuff we do to our bodies, you know, the, the ravages that we inflict upon the literal physical earth are just extensions of this inappropriate relationship to our personal earth. So we start with that, beautiful. And then now, yes, you progress to, you know, to the very elixir of life. I mean, the next thing that one does in meditation is a very gentle um, relationship of mindfulness to the natural movement of one's breath, which is literally the movement of life. I mean, if you're alive, you're breathing, if you're dead, you're not. And we are, most people probably haven't reflected on this, but we are literally just one breath away from death. I mean, you only have to breathe out, don't breathe in, and that's it. And so in the meditative traditions, one works with the breath as a way to now develop a a transitional relationship to the movement of mind, because what, and this gets a little bit more subtle, but um, when we work with the body, the body um, is like, a you know, when we become stationary in meditation, the body in a certain point, at a certain point, it's like a sit-in. Remember those protests, the sit-ins? The stasis of the body, um, in a certain sense, in the meditative traditions, are kind of a gentle protest, quote-unquote, against the wild movements of the mind. And so the, what the breath does is it, it has some movement involved in it, Yes. And so it acts as a kind of transition from body to mind. And so, you know, when I give my meditation instructions, and this is why I'm so intrigued by the sequence of your questions here, Connor, is that I actually, my sequence of meditation instructions is you start with body, proceed to breath, and then you proceed to mind. So you use body and breath as segues to establish a more sane, healthy relationship to mind. And so, breath acts as this kind of transition because there's a little bit of movement, obviously, involved with breath. And that movement actually helps us slide into the natural movement of the mind, um, which, of course, you know, in, in, the, in uh, <clears throat> the inner yogic systems, they actually talk about thought as nothing more than movement of mind. And so when one works with physical movement, uh, I'm sorry, when one works with um, respiration and the movement of breath, one is already developing a very subtle relationship to mind. And to give you a sense of this, to show you how deep this goes, I mean, pay attention to when you're really, really angry. You'll find your breath is very sharp and choppy and short. In fact, many studies have shown that people who are depressed have a very shallow respiratory capacity. They don't breathe deeply. Um, and so there's a very intimate connection between breath and in mind. And mind, and in fact, in the um, what are called the inner yogas, you know, I mentioned earlier this idea of the subtle body. Not only do does the wisdom traditions have meditations yogas for the outer gross body, but they have meditations for the inner body, of which, by the way, lucid dreaming, which we may get to, is one of these. Um, these these uh, inner yogas are designed to work with the inner subtle body, and these are actually called wind yogas. Um, because there are very subtle ways to work with this more subtle dimension of, of reality. Um, and so as you intimate, Nam, um, Connor, breath is a, is a very big deal um, and, and, you know, it's in its kind of utilization for spiritual practice. And you know, I'm not sure how far you want to go on this, because it is a vast topic that we could riff on for days. So maybe I'll come up mm-hmm. for air, part of the fun. And uh, <laughs> what, you know, I could, let me just say one last thing around this. This is very interesting to me um when we go to sleep at night well what we do is we literally you know we we unwind or you know kind of the inner reading of that is we unwind and so what happens during the course of the day is the winds accumulate and you're talking about especially with male energy the winds accrete they they kind of rise up from the body they accrete into the head we get all wound up and we have things like You know, insomnia, all kinds of head disorders because the winds are are too concentrated in the head center. And so when we engage in meditation or when we come home at the end of the day to, to prepare for sleep, we unwind, we unwind. And we can use the power of wind, of breath, as a way to unwind on our terms and notice how our awareness may descend from our head center down into our body. So there's so much more to say here, but maybe I'll pause and see. Um, where you want to go with all this
0: yeah 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 no absolutely I think I mean I think talking about the breath is is definitely important it's you know for for me it's been one of the things that's really unlocked a, a, like a deeper ease in my meditative practice and then also just a uh, an ease and a groundedness and a presence throughout the day I, I remember when I first started singing and I started to get in touch with my breath as like a 19 year old kid you know who played hockey and worked out and you know, was very active and was working, you know, working construction. I had so much tension in my body that my breath always seemed strained. And when it came to singing, it was always strained. It was sort of forced. And and there, it was like this very powerful force that I, I, you know, sort of couldn't get a hold of. I think for a lot of people, especially with, you know, a lot of men, they have a, a similar sensation where they start to tune into their breath. And it so, sort of seems to be like this, this force that, yeah. um, that they then try and force themselves upon, if that makes sense. And so, yeah. and so I, I've noticed that a lot of men will try and sort of wrestle their breath, like they would wrestle their mind, you know, and try and it's sort funny. of subdue it. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, and the work that you do, how do we how do we encourage, you know, men and women Um, that maybe are more physical or or that are taking that approach to sort of wrestle their breath into submission in meditation. How how do we sort of just find a space of an allowing in there?
1: Yeah, Well, you just nailed it, my friend. It is just simply allowing that space to happen. And what you said was really quite profound. Um, And that is that, in fact, there is a very, like I alluded to, a very intimate connection between breath and mind, between the velocity of one's breath and the velocity of one's thoughts. And so what we do with breath, and this again is why breath is the intermediate step between body and mind in the meditative instructions is we relate to breath as eventually we want to relate to mind. And it's exactly as you said, we don't try to wrestle with it. Um, We don't just like, we don't want to wrestle with our mind. We want to simply breathe into that space and allow whatever You know, it's it's literally the power of acceptance. It's allowing you to manifest just as you are right here and right now. And this is why many meditative traditions, as you know, are referred to as warrior traditions, because it takes courage. It takes bravery to be just who and what you are. And so very practically, what one does here is, is if you sit in meditation and your breathing is all over the place, Just be with that, you know, just like you want to be with your mind as it is. You don't want to control it in this kind of muscular way. Mm. You want to control it with space. And so you, you simply allow yourself, and if you're sitting in meditation and you're paying attention to your breath, you simply ride whatever is happening. If your breath is kind of roaring away, so be it. Just ride with that. Don't indulge it. That Simply be aware of it. Give your mind that uh, pasture, that space for the breath to simply express itself. Um, And if you do that, you will also notice that, um, and this is the power, that your mind is also doing the same type of dance. You're just creating in this power of environment. And and I have to say something here, Connor, that's really been very inspiring to me that is completely applicable. This is a very beautiful story um, of Krishnamurti. I'm sure you've heard of him, the great theosophist who taught for some, you know, 70 years and amazing individuals, you know, worked with scientists with incredible sage and allegedly towards the end of his life, he was once asked, you know, what, what is the secret to your contentment, to your happiness? And his, his response is so disarming. He simply said, I don't mind what happens. I don't mind what happens. And so this applies so beautifully here that when you're sitting in meditation, And you know, you have this self-imposed, you know, bar that you've created for yourself, which is this is where, again, the only problem is our erroneous definitions of what we think meditation should be. We set this bar of, oh, I shouldn't be thinking like this, oh, I shouldn't be breathing like that. Well, who who says that you shouldn't? I mean, that's a self-imposed, you know, judgment. And so the invitation with the wisdom traditions is to allow yourself to just simply express. Where you are, be who you are, where you are, and allow that simple space to play. Allow your, you know, the children of your experience, so to speak, to simply play. And so the breath, you know, will eventually. Um, you may find as you do this that the, that the breath may take on a different texture, but you simply become, you know, you become like a, an, an objective reporter, you know, a witness. It's called witness awareness, where. You you simply watch this breathing take place with some almost humorous, like, wow, how interesting is this? You know, today, my breath is really kind of rough and choppy. Instead of beating yourself up about it, you're curious. You go, wow, how interesting is this? Let's just be with this. And with that in mind, Connor, I, I want to give you and your listeners a very powerful and unbelievably simple practice that was given to me by one of my meditation masters, and when I first heard it, I, I thought it was like, oh, give me a break. I mean, this is like for Reader's Digest, this is so simple. But there's real power here. And and what he instructed us to do, and this is a very highly realized master of the Tibetan tradition, he literally, Connor, gave us um, what's called one breath meditation session. And what you do here is literally for the course of one inhalation and one exhalation, you simply pay full embodied awareness, attention, mindfulness to that one kind of respiratory cycle, and then you drop it. Um, and so, I mean, we can let's do it together right now. I mean, what does it take, like 20 seconds? Mm-hmm. I mean, let's do it together. Let's pause for 20 seconds. Let's take, a, you know, I won't say anything. We'll take a brief inhalation, a brief exhalation, and that's it. So let's let's give it a go or or in this case a, a no go, right? Let's do it. That's it. So when people come to me, you know, I've been teaching meditation for over 20 years. And when people come to me, and they tell me they can't meditate, I do two things. First of all, I say, "Well, please share with me what your definition of meditation is." And usually, what I discover is their meditation is fine. It's their definition of meditation that needs work mm. because they, oh, they kind of put themselves in. Oh, I got to be like this guy on the mountaintop sitting without moving full of peace and tranquility. And, you know, then they, they set these bars that are just unreasonable. And, and then secondly, I say, well, okay, you know, let's work on our definition. Let's refine that. Um, and then the second thing I say is, Hey, let's pay attention to one cycle of respiration. Can you do that? Woo! I mean, you know, a four-year-old can do that. And I go, that's it. That's meditation. And so you sit, you know, we don't have to have these long sessions, you know, in fact, in in the higher stages of the path, they often say short sessions repeated frequently are really the secret. And so if we refine our understanding of meditation, and and this is no small thing, you know, really understanding what meditation is and what it it aspires to do, you will discover that most of the time people have problems with their meditation because their definition is a little bit skewed. And then secondly, if one can simply abide in a cycle of one inhalation and one exhalation, I do this when I'm at a stop sign, when I feel energy contracting around a developing difficult um, conversation or situation, I kind of do a kind of instantaneous retreat. I do a very brief meditation retreat where I connect to my body, I connect one breath. And I'm telling you, my friend, this is profound in terms of kind of Creating a sense of space, it ventilates the situation. It's like your mind is breathing because you're connecting to these qualities of one's breath. Mm. And so, um, I have found these to be extraordinarily helpful because they're so applicable. And again, it's just a way of using what we already have in coming to the wisdom of our senses, coming to the wisdom of
0: our body. Mm-hmm. Um, so No, I, I, I like I like that. You know, I, it's it actually reminds me of when I was singing, and my my teacher, I had a I had a tendency to really like breathe in deeply when I was singing, and and I'm sure that we you know we all do this to some degree when we're playing sports and whatnot. But I, I would really breathe in, and, and he stopped me one day and he said, he said, you don't need to take a breath in for the entire song. You just need to take a breath in <laughs> for this phrase, and it was. Yeah, it was so funny because I was also he, you know, I was also studying with him uh, because he was well versed in Jungian psychology and uh, Zazen, uh, you know, uh, Buddhism. And and so I was also working with him outside of that. And I thought, oh, how applicable is that to my meditation? You know, I like I don't need to breathe in for the full 20 minutes. I just need to breathe in for this one moment. And that that really helped shift something within me, where I was like, "Oh yeah," and I could actually just sort of sigh into it and, and really breathe into it. So, okay, so so that's uh, that's body, that's breath, and and maybe quickly before we talk about um, before we talk about death and, and lucid dreaming, um, how does the mind fit into this? What do we do with the what do we do with the chaos of the mind once we reach that third stage? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's terrific, right. So this is great. I mean, we're basically giving meditation instruction here. Love it. So yeah, body, breath, I mean, really, life 101. And so what that then does is it creates a container. It creates a kind of, you know, what I refer to as a kind of contrast medium. And by that, what I mean is that, and this is, some, this is important because it'll help people relate to the frenetic, um, discursive, you know, kind of crazy monkey mind that, that we all have is that one of the reasons we, we engage with stasis, we sit, we breathe, is in a certain sense, we're creating, we're flushing, we're removing the camouflage of daily activity. In other words, during the course of our busyness, our busy lives, we're so busy, we're so active, we simply can't see what's taking place in the inner subtle landscape of our minds and our hearts. And by the way, this is also important in both Sanskrit and Pali, the word for heart and mind are the same. It's cheetah. So when we talk about mind, mindfulness, really, we're, we're also talking about heartfulness. It's not just a cognitive event. Mindfulness is a true heart-mind event. It's, it's also embodied. It's visceral. And I think that's quite important because otherwise it seems like this kind of mental, cerebral gymnastics. And, and that's just a very small part of it. But, you know, as we sit in meditation... We're in a certain way creating a kind of contrast medium of stability, stasis, like a canvas that now allows us to see what we maybe have not seen before. You know, we, in, other, in other words, we can now paint our mind on this canvas. We can see the display of our mind in a way that we couldn't see before because the camouflage was there, you know, busy mind masked by busy lives. And this is super important to point out at first, because usually when people meditate, and I've heard this a thousand times from my own students. They come to me and say, you know, my mind was never this crazy. My mind was never this wild. Meditation is making things work worse. Well, it's actually not. It's simply allowing, pardon the play, allowing you to see how bad, <laughs> how bad things are. Um, in other words, it simply allows you to see that your mind has been this way. It's not making things worse. It's just simply allowing you to see. And so, with that said, then what we do, and again, it's so graceful, it's it's so beautiful, really. We sit in meditation, we breathe. Where you know that's kind of the contrast at the background, and of course, within a microsecond, a thought arises—an image, regret, anticipation—and usually, you know, we just we we capitulate to it. We get lost in it, and, and just ever so briefly, parenthetically, since you mentioned lucid dreaming, right here, Connor, right here is the basis of non lucidity. In other words, whenever we get lost in thought, whenever we go along with an image, that's that's where non lucidity non-awareness is born. We can come back to that. The idea here is a thought arises, which happens, you know, tens of thousands of times a day. Not a problem. Not a problem. Uh, a thought arises, and the invitation here is to simply, you know, recognize that thought. And the actual meditation instruction that I was given is you simply say to yourself mentally kind of a mental act of recognition you simply say to yourself oh thinking and then you come back to your body and breath and the label thinking it's not a reprimand it's not like you're taking out a hammer and squashing the thought no the label thinking is an act of recognition that your mind has strayed there's nothing wrong you recognize it it's like you know popping a bubble with a feather it's very precise very gentle and then you just come back and you just come back And all the while, this entire process is held within this container of tremendous kindness, tremendous gentleness, tremendous, you could say, truly love for the contents of your own experience. And it's as if, you know, in Shambhala Buddhism, they talk about it, you hold it in the cradle of loving kindness. You know, it's as if you're you're cradling a, a child. In this case, it's just your mind. You're holding it in this environment of your body and breath. And that holding environment allows these thoughts to play out without problem. And as as one does that, one will quickly realize, you know, oh, oh my God, you know, these thoughts really aren't a problem. They're just what my mind does. My mind just thinks. That's not a problem. Let it think. Let it play. The practice is don't get lost in your thoughts. Don't judge your thoughts. You know, Kripalu, um, the great sage Kripalu, out of which the Kripalu Institute in, in the East Coast was born, was, you know, the highest form of spiritual practice is self-observation without judgment. Mm. What a beautiful statement. Mm -hmm. Self-observation without judgment. Just let yourself be. It's not a problem. The problem is, as I alluded to, inappropriate relationship. Pushing that thought away, grasping after that thought. That's what we work with. But the foundations could not be simpler. And again, that's where the power
0: comes from. Yeah, I love it. And I think that this is a... This is also a good segue into, you know, the the lucid dreaming and some of those pieces. Um, so thank you for thank you for for outlining that, because I feel like um, in, inadvertently I didn't intend for this to happen. But inadvertently, we've kind of given the the three steps to, to a meditative practice, which I think are are very profound in, in many ways and, and much simpler than I think most people would realize. You know, so I, I really appreciate you diving into that with me. Um yeah. yeah. So so tell me a little bit about lucid dreaming. Like I think we've a lot of people hear about this and, uh, and, and I've I've played with this quite a bit, being someone that uh, has studied a lot of, of Carl Jung and Jungian psychology and archetypes. And it's I'm always fascinated um, by dreams. Um, but maybe first, if you could just define for those who don't actually know what lucid dreaming is, if you could just define what lucid dreaming is and then why it's why it's relevant and important for people.
1: Yeah, great. Yeah, you know, this is my big passion these days, you know, <clears throat> writing extensively on it and, and launching some cool stuff, which maybe I can say at the end. But lucid dreaming is, you know, that's a magical moment when you are, you're in a dream and something will clue you into the fact that you're dreaming. And all of a sudden, what happens is you actually awaken um, in the dream. So you're, you're dreaming. Something clues you into the fact that you're dreaming. Um, And then you simply wake up within the dream. Um, So you're dreaming and you know it. And uh, it's been scientifically proven, 1975, 1977, by um, colleagues in in England and then Stanford University. It's been unequivocally um, proven over and over and over again. So there's no doubt whatsoever that this is a legitimate experience. And in fact, I have to say, I read a most marvelous book a couple of weeks ago, Matthew Walker, um, the book is called Why We Sleep. It's an incredible distillation of information about the incredible importance of sleep and dream. And I have to say this because he's a hardcore neuroscientist and and he only relegates two or three pages to lucid dreaming. But at the very end of his short riff on it, he actually says something that's very compelling to me where he says, you know, it's entirely possible that lucid dreamers represent the next iteration in human evolution, um, which suggests that waking up within the context of your dream Is is a way that consciousness can evolve and stretch into previously unconscious domains, and so there's just a tremendous amount to to say here, Connor. You can direct me in terms of like, you know, why should one bother Mm, with this? Yeah,
0: I mean, why? uh, I I was gonna I was gonna say like, you know, I think the more that I have, um, the you know, the more that I've experienced lucid dreaming myself, and the more that I have sort of opened up into that space um, over the last you know several years. It it has been quite transformative in in many ways because there seems to be it's it's almost like in lucid dreams when you sort of wake up inside of the dream and that you know you're dreaming, you you become aware. To at least my experience so thus far is that I almost seem to be aware of the processing that's happening in my subconscious mind, and 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 exactly. it seems to be able to disseminate some of the challenges that are going on in my life, the anxieties, the worries. And it's almost like this removed perspective where I can see what is churning, like what's causing stress or worries in my subconscious mind, or, or what my subconscious mind feels that I should be doing about a specific thing that's happening in my, in my waking reality. And, and it's been a very fascinating experience to have the sensation and the unfolding of intuition like really waking up in a huge way, like my intuition, really just being able to be represented in that space. So, yeah. So why don't, why don't we just move into the space of, of, you know, why it's important for people to, to start becoming aware of and, and then how do you actually prompt that? Because I, I, you know, I work with a lot of clients and one of the first things that I say is like, you know, start being, becoming aware of your dreams and most people have been like, oh, I, I haven't been aware of my dreams in, in decades, you know? <laughs> so so maybe I'll just I'll, – I'll leave that to you for right yeah. now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, there's so much to say here. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I've published one book. I'm writing three others on this. So it's a huge part of what I'm doing now. But you said something that's very compelling to me, um, Connor, when, when you talked about this kind of ability to do work with your subconscious and then the even deeper unconscious mind. Um, and that is that lucid dreaming is sometimes referred to in the scientific community as a hybrid state of consciousness, which means it's a somewhat rarefied form that where the conscious mind um, can actually meet and work with the unconscious mind directly. And short of hypnosis, which only 10% of people are highly hypnotizable, it's the only other state that provides this extraordinary opportunity. And the reason it's so compelling and transformative is, um, first of all, lucid dreaming lucidity is a code word for awareness so a lucid dream is an aware dream it's a dream that when you're you are aware of the fact that you're dreaming and anything that works with awareness is curative i would go so far as to say if there's if there's one fundamental ingredient to resolving any psychological or spiritual issue or even pathology it's awareness Um, And so the practice of lucid dreaming, you know, once you get past the video game stage, you know, the entertainment thing, the the part that sells, it's kind of sexy and cool. Once you get past that video game stage, um, lucid dreaming and on I have to say briefly, lucid dreaming is just the first of four nocturnal meditations. I mean, there are three more stages after lucid dreaming, but lucid dreaming in and of itself is huge. And so one analogy I use here, Connor, is it's like, you know, the reason it's so transformative, somewhat akin to why hypnosis is so transformative, is you're working, as you alluded, with the, the ground of your experience. You're working with the unconscious mind. Um, I use the analogy of you're working with the tectonic plates of your experience. And ever since Freud and going back even farther to the great wisdom traditions, and I mean, in so many ways, the Buddha, literally the awakened one, that's what his name means, literally the Buddha um, was the ultimate lucid dreamer. He woke up to the nature of reality by waking up in his dreams. And so when we work with lucidity in the dream state, we're working with the tectonic plates of our experience, the very foundations. You know, any psychologist will tell you backstage runs on stage. Whatever we do in our so-called conscious lives is vastly dictated by unconscious processes, most of which we are completely unaware of. And so by working with our mind in these subtle dimensions, um, we can pull back the covers of darkness, so to speak. And, and what you alluded to is spot on. You know what you do in the lucid dreaming state with deep lucid dream practice, let alone dream yoga practice. You then bring those insights from the night um, to transform and illuminate your day. And this is where it just rocks, because you know we spend 25% of our time um, in, in what's called REM sleep. So at least 25%. That's a month a year. That's about six to seven years of our lives lost in the oblivion of non-lucid sleep. And if we can maintain lucidity, cultivate lucidity, it's quite literally you're adding up to seven years to your life. No, this is not an exaggeration. You're extending your life because you're extending your consciousness. And I like to refer to it as you're entering a very unique um, kind of night school where you have the ability every night to engage in profoundly transformative practices that, can, that are total game changers, um, that can open dimensions of experience that, that are really um, beyond comprehension almost. And this is one reason I'm so impassioned with these now, because we now have the science behind it. We have Western induction methods that I can turn to briefly mm-hmm. for how to induce these dreams. And then just incredible spectrum of ap- application, how you can work, You know, what you work with in, in your dream state not only affects your mind, it also affects your body. I mean, so you can do things in the dream state that improve physical performance, resolve nightmares that resolve. I mean, the, the the amount of data here is almost too good to be true. Um, and so maybe I'll pause because really, there's so much we can talk about here maybe you can
0: guide me yeah yeah i mean i would love uh you know i'd love for you to maybe just give a little bit of insight into how people can start to cultivate or or sort of induce this state because i think that that's uh, probably the best place to go
1: yeah that sounds great and so you know in in a form of kind of stealth health i like this term there's more going on than meets the eye um we've been doing it and so by that what i mean is that in many ways, especially in the world of dream yoga, which is where lucid dreaming transforms into a deeper type of spiritual practice, that's dream yoga, the principal practice there is the daily practice of meditation. And this this cannot be overstated. Um, I alluded to this ever so briefly in our instruction, is that the reason we're non-lucid to our dreams at night is because we're non-lucid or non-aware of the contents of our mind during the day. It's like the great poet Kabir once said of death also applies to dream. What is found now is found then. Or in this case, what is not found now is not found then. And so many studies, this is not just metaphysical uh, mumbo-jumbo, many studies have shown that meditators have more lucid dreams And in the mind of a meditation master, all their dreams are lucid, all of them. And it makes total sense because if you maintain awareness, lucidity, in the context of your daily meditation practice, that proficiency naturally extends into the dream state. So if you want to have lucid dreams at night, practice lucidity during the day. Meditation is what I call a super technique. Meditators have more lucid dreams. Now, more specifically, you know, like if people really want to rock it, um, you start with developing a dream recall. You know whether we know it or not, we have at least five dream periods. These aren't just dreams; these are five dream cycles um, every single night. And we're dreaming whether we know it or not. Um, we're dreaming whether we're lucid to it or not. And so we start by cultivating dream recall with a dream journal. You have a little dream journal on your side, and, and you make the uh, you set the intention before you go to sleep. I want to remember my dreams. And you start to write down little snippets of your dreams. And and as you'll find, if you persist, you'll start to remember more dreams. Your dreams will stabilize. Um, And then you set a very strong intention. This is the other super technique, as I call it. The power of intention cannot be overstated. And in fact, I went to a dream yoga um, seminar not too long ago where this dream yoga master, the only induction method he gave for lucidity in dreams was intention. And intention is a very interesting word. It literally means to stretch towards, and so we want to stretch the conscious mind into previously unconscious domains. And by this, what you do again, it could not be easier. Is throughout the course of the day, and especially just before you go to sleep, you set a really powerful intention, and you really mean it. You don't, you don't just flap your lips. You really mean it, and you say something to yourself, something to yourself like, you know, tonight I'm going to have many dreams. I'm going to remember my dreams. I'm going to wake up in my dreams. And you really mean it. Um, the power of intention cannot be overstated. Um, and then, you know, scientifically, a very clever thing you can do, this was discovered by um, a number of scientists, is what's called the wake and back to bed method. And, and by this, what, it, what we, one does is the latter parts of the evening are usually when we're in dreaming sleep or REM sleep. Um, it's what I call primetime dream time. And so what you do here is called the wake-and-back-to-bed method. Is you set your alarm to go off about two to three hours before you normally wake up. You stay up anywhere from, you know, 10 minutes to a half an hour. Do not go to your electronic gadgets. Do not turn on lights. Maybe engage in some simple meditation. Maybe engage in very, um, you know, subtle contemplations and reinstating your intention. And then you simply go back to bed. And studies have shown that this wake-and-back-to-bed method can enhance, increase your chances of lucidity by up to um, 2,000%. That's a a 20-fold increase. Um, And I find it to be extremely effective. And then outside of that, Connor, there's just a a host of techniques, tips, gadgets, tricks, I think well beyond the scope of what we have time for today. But the basic idea is that lucid dreaming is absolutely positively something that one can learn, just like any other enterprise, playing golf, playing the piano, um, this is a skill that you can develop. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for some 40 years. It's like second mm-hmm. nature to me at this point. I'm not special. I've just been doing it for four decades. And to me, I'm, you know, I could not be more passionate about it because, you know, the way it's transformed and illuminated my life is, is just beyond belief. And I'm so passionate about these practices is because I see their potential for, for psychological mm-hmm. and spiritual growth.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, no, I think that, I, I, that's... That's phenomenal. I love the explanation and and just how to get into it. Um, and I know that we're, you know, we're we're pretty much wrapped up for time. And I feel like we could have a like a two-hour long conversation on some of these things and really do a deep dive into lucid dreaming and, and some of these other pieces. But, you know, where where I just wanted to end things off on is, you know, you you talk a lot and you've written extensively around preparing for death. And um, you know, I think it's such a fascinating yeah. topic. And I might have to have you back on and just to just actually dive into that for an entire hour but but I, I'm, I'm curious as to you know just just why maybe if you can just unpack a little bit um if you know anything that we were talking about before is relevant to preparing for death and and how one actually goes about that and why they should
1: yeah right well again uh, another beautiful question in a voluminous um, one yes you know i mean um so much to say here the we have, in the West, a very unfortunate relationship to, to death. You know, we live in denial of it. We think it's a defeat. Um, we feel that um, it's, you know, the ultimate blackout. But this is, unfortunately, a very um, kind of nearsighted, short-sighted way of, of viewing. Um, you know, in the, in the Eastern traditions, well, let me, let me back out a little. In the West, the analogy I use, Connor, is we have a, a, a relationship to um, consciousness um, that is somewhat linear, You know, it's like we wake up in the morning, we go to sleep at night, um, we get in line at the beginning of life, we reach the end of the line when we die, we go online, we're offline. It's kind of yes, no, black, white um, approach that I relate to the Western light switch. You know, you're either awake or asleep, dead or alive. Um, But the Eastern traditions um, have a much more nuanced relationship to death. It's basically... It's not really um, yes, no, um, alive, dead. Um, It's basically replacing the light switch with a dimmer. Um, In other words, mind simply goes from um, gross to subtle to very subtle. And this is why we had this brief interjection earlier in our conversation about subtle body. Um, So when we die, we we don't, we don't, it's only gross states of mind, gross states of body. Yes, for sure. Those die. But there is a part of you, and, and for Westerners, this is, a, this is like an incredulous assertion, but the, the great wisdom traditions are unequivocal about this, and my experience resonates with it, is that there is a part of you right here and right now that um, does not get old, does not get sick, does not get Alzheimer's, AIDS, and dementia. There is a part of you right now, quite literally, that does not die. Um, It's literally called the changeless nature, the deathless nature. And it's only because our minds are so loud, so outward bound, so gross, so preoccupied that we can't see, witness, listen and and become familiar with these subtle states. And so the meditative traditions, they allow us, you know, the, the great jingle actually comes from Christian mysticism, you know, goes like this is if you die before you die, then when you die, you will not die. What a beautiful cryptic statement. And what it means is that if you die, in other words, if you let go of, differentiate from, release all these gross levels of attachment to body and to thought and the like, and then, you know, gradually transition your identity to these more subtle dimensions, which which, parenthetically, by the way, these are revealed every single night when we sleep. And this is why dream um, uh, meditation masters, not only are they lucid in the dream state, and this, this may also seem unbelievable, they're actually lucid and deep dreamlessly. Their mind is always on, so to speak. And so, mm. yes, there's so much to say here, my friend, that, you know, I would argue that if we simply opened our eyes, opened our hearts, and um, silenced ourselves, we could bear witness to these subtle dimensions of our being, gross to subtle to very subtle. They simply do not die. And, and this is a game changer. Um, you can imagine if you can die before you die, if you can establish these subtle relationships to your subtle dimensions, think about how it transforms your relationship to the end of life. You know, instead of, you know, raging, as Dylan Thomas says, he's the archetype for the Western world, right? Rage, rage mm-hmm. against the dying of the light. Um, you know, do not gentle into that good night. You know, old age should burn and rave at close of they... Well, you know, that's a western fallacious way of looking at it. You know, the great poet Rabindranath Tagore counters that when he says, you know, death is not extinguishing the light, it's simply putting out the lamp because mm. dawn has come. And so if we wake up early enough, if we wake up early enough, we can see the dawn. We can see these subtle dimensions. We can die before we die. And this is a total game changer. It'll give you tremendous confidence and ease at the end of life. It'll help you um, relate to others as they're dying because you realize the deeper vision behind it. And and I have to say, when I was doing my research for my my book, Preparing to Die, I was just stunned by the utter unflappability. You know, I was able to interview several dozen really evolved beings, in my opinion, and they were completely, utterly unflappable on the face of death. It's like, you know, they know something we don't. But we can know what they know. We can discover these processes. And again, maybe we can't chat more about this later, but it's, a, it's a, an incredibly compelling, provocative way that we can use. Meditation prepares you for this. The nocturnal meditations of lucid dreaming and dream yoga. In fact, in the Buddhist tradition, dream yoga came about principally as a way to prepare for death. There are so many very practical ways that one can prepare for this final journey, this final transition. And really relate to it quite literally, and I'll end on this: transforming the greatest obstacle in life into the greatest opportunity, and literally transforming it into a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, and that's that's quite a gift that these wisdom traditions have given us. And it would be a delight to spend time with you unpacking that, because especially in this Western culture where we live, in so much the denial of death. This is a big deal.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a such a valuable topic, and uh, you know, there's 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 so many different pieces around that that we could definitely dive into, and and I think we will have to do that because I think that's a conversation that I would definitely uh, enjoy enjoy having. So, um, Andrew, thank you so 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 much for joining me on the show today.
1: It's been a total delight, um, Connor. Thanks for taking the time to um, chat a little bit, and I look forward to future opportunities with you, my friend. So, all the best.
0: Yeah, likewise. And if uh, people want to f- learn more about you, find your books, your your, your programs, because I know that you have some really great uh, programs out there guiding people through some of these pieces, uh, where, where where can they actually find you?
1: Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. Very kind of you. Yeah, so my website, of course, Andrew Holacek, um, H O L E C E K, AndrewHolacek.com is my website. And yeah, as, as you were saying, kind of, we do a lot these days. We're actually launching um, within the month, I think, a pretty co- compelling thing, what we're calling the Night Club which all these different topics we talk about are subsumed under that. Um, and so, you know, using that portal, AndrewHolichek.com, you can see the writings that I'm doing, the books I'm publishing, um, people I'm interviewing and the like. So thanks for that gracious opportunity. And, um, you know, perhaps I'll have a chance to chat further about all of this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Uh, again, for everybody that's out there listening, uh, definitely head on over the website. We will have uh, all the links to, to Andrew's books, and to Andrew's work and his website in the show notes so you can find out more about him there Uh, and if you enjoyed this podcast definitely share it with just one person Uh, pass it on to someone that you know would enjoy this conversation and uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play whatever platform you happen to listen to us on so thank you so much for joining us Uh, join us join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual